I, I think that there are like three moments. When, when the prohibition starts in 1920s, because there are people that have uh, some power and, and came to selling and producing illegal drugs. But I think that this grew after World War II, no? because Mexico became a very important producer of, of drugs, mainly heroin, for example. And then in 1970s and 1980s became a really big problem. I think that more, more like we have now. For this week's bonus episode of the History of Drugs in Society, I spoke to Nidia Olvera about the history of drug prohibition in Mexico from the time that the Spanish arrived through the years following World War II. Nidia, who is based in Mexico City, is a professor at the National School of Anthropology teaching history and drug history specifically. She's a current PhD candidate at the Mora Institute, where she's looking at the ancient and modern history of psychoactive substances and drug policies in Mexico. Prior to pursuing her teaching and PhD, Nidia received degrees in social anthropology and ethno-history. It was interesting to explore the early history of prohibition in Mexico starting from the 1600s and really digging into things in the late 1800s and first half of the 20th century. There are definitely some commonalities between the origins of the laws in Mexico and the U.S., some of the first actions against opium focused on Chinese communities, and the moralistic views of substance use at times, just to name two. Nidia talked about some of the medical history and the social developments that led to the changes in drug laws in the 1900s. We also touched on the brief stint of de facto legalization and how the laws changed going into the 1950s, as well as how Henry Anslinger and the U.S. in general influenced the laws in Mexico. We didn't get into the political history too much in terms of the impacts of the Mexican Revolution and the rise of the PRI party, but those are topics that I hope to explore in future episodes as they're crucial for understanding how we got to the current landscape of violence with Mexican drug trafficking organizations. I'll link in the show notes to some resources which I think did a good job of overviewing the political history and how it was linked to the evolution of organized crime in Mexico. And just a quick note of housekeeping given that this will be coming out just after the Intelligent Speech 2020 conference, thank you to all those who came out to support. I know it was a very last minute addition there, and thank you to all of the organizers and other participants for what was a, a great conference. And one more thing is that just given my health as of late, there's a chance that the next episode in the season, which is going to be looking at opium as a drug, there might be a bit of a delay with that one coming out, just given how the last month or so has went. Anyway, coming back to the interview, it starts with me asking Nidia, what were some of the first drug prohibition laws and what substances were they focused on? Yeah, I think that the first prohibition uh, arrived with the colonization of the pre-Columbian societies. For these societies, these psychoactive species like uh, peyote, daturas, morning glory, the psychoactive mushrooms were very important in, in their religious and medicine practice. So when colonizers arrive, uh, they think that these kind of practices were related with sorcery, superstition, idolatry. So they made a, a law, a edict. The, the name of this law was the Peyote Edict that was uh, published on the 17th century. So this edict restricted this uh, peyote, this hallucinogen cactus, um, because the, the colonial authorities think that there, there is a sign, an attempt on the holy Catholic faith. So this 
edicts say that the peyote consumption was a superstition action and that produced image and representation and that, that, that was very related with the devil, uh, that when the people uh, consume this, this cactus, uh, have a connection with the devil. So they prohibit the use of peyote. They say that uh, also another herbs, but they don't say what herbs. So they censor the uses of these plants and they put fines and some corporal penalties. And it sounds as though there was a very religious component to this. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. This this law uh, was uh, published by the, by the Inquisition. So this this religious authority um, and this based on this idea that these practices because they're. These practices, there were part uh, of the religious of indigenous society. So these don't like to the other people that have that, another religion, the Catholic religion. So they decide to to punish this practice with, with these plants, but also another, all of the practices, the majority of practices related of this, of the religions of these societies. So this uh, uh, religious uh, prohibition. But I think this also there are another factors, no? Because they are trying to conquer these communities, so also they imply economical or political interests. But the main idea is like this sacred or religious component. And were these substances being used widely, uh, and sort of were they being used by a lot of people? And were those people using it a lot, or was it not a wide, uh, wide-ranging problem? Some archaeological or historical evidence shows that that was very common, that these plants and substance was part of the official religions of these civilizations, for example, like Aztecs, but they can not use uh, all the time. They are only specific for some uh, celebrations, so they're common, but no... There, they or some only in some rites or in some celebrations, religious celebrations, or for medical uses. Also, they are very common. And were there any, or are there any signs that there were any levels of addiction reached? Mm, not really. Not not because the the kind of the substance, like peyote, there are no. No, they. I think that they, these plants uh, don't have this like potential addiction, but also because addiction, there's no like a concept in that moment that exists. They that that notion of addictions, uh, it's like more recently. But for example, they have some um, ideas about the alcohol. No, for example, here we have a beverage from a fermented cactus that it's the pulque. And there are some rules and punishment for the people that drink more than was expected. But no, like in this idea of a pathology now that we have of addiction. We're just talking about psychoactive substances here uh, and different psychedelics. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Now we, we think about these plants, uh, more this like kind of psychedelics. And um, other like daturas, uh, there are more like, I think, like neurotoxics. And just to refresh the listener's memory, what time period did this start in? Uh, the first, this first law uh, was published in 1620. And all this, after this, there are different um, cases that uh, the Inquisition punished some people uh, for use these plants. 
and it ends when the independence of Mexico was achieved in 1810. So that's when it changed this 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 law, and also it changed because the the modernity arrived and all a lot of ideas and conceptions changed in, in Mexico and in the world. And just to make sure, so between these first laws in the 17th century and Mexican independence in the early part of the 19th century, were the laws the same during that time period? Between that period, yes. And how did the laws change after independence? Mm, first, because they, that uh, conception or religious conception uh, changed. Then the law or the laws that were published in the 19th century they are more um, based on this idea of the science, and so this idea of religion changed. But some some notions, I think, that were preserved, for example, this idea of the temperance, that is a religious idea, um, they still happens in, in or they still been part of of these laws on, on the 19th century, and and also the ideas that. The, that the indigenous population used these psychoactive plants influenced these modern restrictions, uh, mainly in the idea that this practice uh, of the consumption of peyote, for example, were backward and uncivilized. But now with this idea of the modern science. And when did substances such as opium and marijuana start appearing uh, in Mexico? For example, we, we know more about marijuana. We know that uh, this plant arrived in colonial times, maybe in the 16th century or 17th, 16th. I think there are some evidence to crop hemp you know, with these industrial intentions uh, to make ropes. And, and it's very interesting, the history of marijuana in Mexico, because even this industrial, when this industrial cultivation did not prosper. So the but the plant uh, became very important, like in traditional uh, medicine and in some sect- sectors of the population, like the army, the prisons, and some other lower classes. Uh, but we know that uh, since 16th century, marijuana arrived. But opium, we, I think that I'm not sure. It's not completely clear when arrived, but probably since 17th or 18th century. But what we know is by the 19th century, it, it was um, used opium uh, very common, like in other parts of the world, like in laudanum, syrups, and these all kind of preparations with opium that we could, or the people uh, of that time could uh, obtain in the drugstores and pharmacies. And when did the laws start expanding, the prohibition laws start expanding from just covering substances such as peyote and some of the others that you mentioned to different substances such as uh, marijuana, opiates, or any others? For example, first, at the end of the 19th century, the, this idea of the crimes against health became in, in 1871. Uh, there is a penal code that includes this, this idea. But they are more related with the quality and the purity of substance and to limit their distribution and the prescription, no, only to the doctors and the pharmaceuticals. But um, in 1920, it's when the, the, uh, the first like modern prohibitions uh, was, was published in... It's very interesting because this law uh, prohibited uh, marijuana, poppy opium, uh, well, marijuana and poppy opium, all the crop cultivation, the commercialization, and any other activities. 
And for example, cocaine, heroin, and morphine, they prohibit, um, the, they restrict the use, not, not what we could export, not import. Um, this law is very interesting because the name is the dispositions on the cultivation and commerce of substance and that they generate the race. No? And that's a federal law that forbade these, these plants and substance. And I think it's interesting because, for example, this law prohibited marijuana uh, 17 years before that the Marijuana Tax Act on the U.S., so that's in 1920. And it sounds as though overall a number of trends were similar between the U.S. and Mexico in terms of uh, the rise of patent medicine in the 17 and 1800s, especially in the 1800s, in terms of the the initial laws in the 1800s more focusing on the medicine who has access to the medicine and the purity of its side more along the lines of the I think it was the uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act in the U.S. in 1906 I think it was and then it was more in the in the 20s that the prohibition came in strongly and I know in the U.S. there was a strong racial component to some of the initial thinking. And that was just one element of the overall progressive era thinking. Uh, And some of the first laws that came up against opium were in uh, the West Coast, specifically targeting Chinese communities. When looking at Mexico, were there any racial components to some of the new laws that started coming up in the 18 and 1900s? Yeah, yeah, very similar, because some of that population, some of that Chinese people, came from Mexico to the north of Mexico. And before that, there are some other migration of Chinese people. And that's the same, that the Chinese people, uh, they think that bring the opium and also that they are, uh, they are they smoke a lot and, and also they are trafficking with this opium. So that's, that's interesting that uh, there is very common that the persecution of Chinese people, for example, related with, with opium. In, in one part, and, and, and on the other hand, for example, is this, this idea of this law that, that I say about these dispositions that degenerate the race is this idea, you know, that the consumption of these substances and, plant and plants and other activities, like, for example, crime, you know, uh, um, can degenerate the race, or that's, that's like uh, the idea related with psychiatry of that moment. So... They tr- they say or they made this this disposition, and and they say that the the population of Mexico uh, have to to be far away of the consumption of this substance because it could be bad for for the people to to use frequently this substance. So I think that it's another and, and the other this for example these uh, plants that that we were talking about like peyote the, the it's also a bad idea because it looks like an uncivilized, no? Because there, there, there were a practice from indigenous. So I think there are another component, racial component, on these ideas. How were some of the laws starting? You mentioned already, let's say, with marijuana, with the law in 1920. How are they changing? the overall uh, availability in terms of the legal side and in turn how much did the laws cause some of the illegal activity relating to those substances mm, at the at the first moment i think there are no a lot of there are no so important but 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 there are evidence that there are people at the beginning of the prohibition that there were put on prison because these drug crimes 
1920, and there are the both parts, no, the people that uh, were punished because they traffic or or consume these drugs, but the the other thing that the prohibition made that the trafficking and illegal distribution starts with with uh, that and I think that, that the next day of the prohibition begins because I I, I found some uh, judicial ex- experience or papers documents about the people that they are selling and producing illegal drugs and also with international connections in 1920s so I think that knowing the like today but the, there is the beginnings also with uh, the this consequence about in, for the, this kind of drug policies. And were any of these policies, uh, when it came to how they were coming about, was there an aspect that was related to a changing nature of who was actually using these different substances in the country? For example, in the U.S., I know a lot of the progressive era thinking coincided with the majority of usage and addiction shifting from uh, you know, middle and upper class individuals, especially higher percentage of women, shifting to more of the underclass and a higher percentage of uh, of working class and poorer young men, uh, and that kind of helped the, the the changing views in the U.S. Were there any similar parallels in terms of changes in who is actually using the substances in Mexico? Yeah, mm, for example, at, at the beginning of twentieth century. Uh, it depends of, of the drug of the substance. Marijuana, they're uh, more related with these lower classes. And for example, opiates like um, morphine or heroin, they're more used for, uh, in the artists, uh, bohemians, and these like some elites in the country. But for example, then in, th- in 1930s, there, there was very common the use of heroin in Mexico City. And it's, um, I don't know exactly why or how this happened, but now there is no a lot of heroin. For example, in Mexico City, there are a lot of, of use of heroin in North Mexico, but now in this modern world, this contemporary world, it's more, for example, crack, cocaine, no? For example, marijuana, it's a, a drug very, that it's still used, and, but I think that not changing a lot. I, it, it, uh, spread from other uh, population, no, not only lower classes. Now there are different kind of people that consume marijuana. But for example, with, with opiate, it changes. Even we, or in Mexico, uh, have a lot of illegal production of heroin. There are no a lot of consumption, so it changes with the time. And in the early part of the of the twentieth century, what were the general social attitudes towards drug consumption? Mm, I um, in some uh, classes maybe it's common and accepted, but and, uh, and something like it's, I don't think it's good, but it's like common. But then this idea that drugs, especially for example marijuana, generate madness and criminal acts, uh, spread in Mexico uh, mainly with the support from the press. But this. There are thousands of notes, for example, in Mexican newspapers that disseminate this idea that the people under the effects of marijuana or other narcotic drugs had inappropriate behaviors, no, generated scandal or committed crimes, no, violent crimes. So these ideas 
began to spread in, in, in the people. And, and, and I think that this was a part of, of the strategies of the prohibition. No? So the people, or to justify this drug law. So by the 30s, 40s, there are more common the idea that there are drugs and that these were bad. And also the, um, the scientists' studies, uh, there are not so common after the, the prohibition. No? So mm-hmm. I think that it, it really changed a lot, but uh, not, not in, in, in all sectors, but in the majority, I think that yes. And what kind of organizations within the government were first tasked with enforcing these new prohibition laws when they were coming up in the in the twenties? Uh, yeah, the, first it's interesting because this this law and these there are drug crimes. I mean, they are on the penal code, but the um, the organization that uh, was in charge and enforced this law, there uh, the name is the Narcotic Police. So and this this a police group, but the this group was in charge of the health department of Mexico. So there is a a thing between the medical and security approach. You no, know? this and it's a, a very little group. This narcotic police uh, that exists between nineteen twenty and the fifties, I think. Um, so, but this this police, for example. Became, became to be like a supervise the drugstores and look at that the, the quantities are good but after that they became like a, like more with this they have arms no they have guns and more like violent uh, thing no and, and at, at the thirties they are like they are more like making like secret agents or something like that <laughs> yeah. So and after that, in 1947, uh, the this like medical or part of medical influence changed because then it changed uh, to put on the army and on the uh, general attorney. So then they changed, and the, that's the the thing that still happens now. No more like the security approach. Yeah. And was there at any point a more medical or social approach, or did it kind of lean towards the the penal and criminal approach from the start? No, for example, this that's that's interesting because yes, this this health department have this group police, but they also have a hospital, especially for for the people that have some addiction or a problem with drugs. So they have this. This this little hospital that was in the mental hospital in another big beer mental hospital, so they are trying to to have some um, medical treatment for these people. No, so they more for example with the people that consume heroin. They in the theories they saw that there is a problem and maybe that some people need attention and not to be in on the prison. So they they have this this approach and this hospital, and also, for example, private doctors can uh, make treatments for these people. And for example, some scientists uh, and doctors in in this moment uh, were making a lot of experimentation uh, with different drugs, mainly with marijuana. So they are some of the they are trying to say that there are no not so bad that, for example, the press that like the press were saying no. So maybe if 
you want. I, I could, or I want to talk a little bit of, of this, for example, one scientist that changed a little bit these ideas and having, and he, he because also he worked, for example, in this hospital. Um, this is, um, that'd be great. Yeah, this is uh, Leopoldo Salazar Minegra. He was a Mexican psychiatrist. He uh, was a professor, a politician, no? He and he was a scientist. And he is very famous because his studies about drugs, mainly marijuana. For example, he published uh, in 1938 the uh, article, The Myth of Marijuana. This article had the goal to eradicate some fake information about cannabis. Uh, it was based on empirical evidence. Now he experimented with dogs, frogs, other other animals, like an in a, on an inhalation boxes, and also with people, no, including other other scientists, the students, and some uh, people mentally ill because he worked in this uh, mental hospital. He, for example, argued that cannabis had healing pro- properties, no, for asthma, for rheumatism, and as a pain reliever. And he said that there is no evidence to link in this plan to criminal actions, to violence or madness. No, uh, for example, he also makes some studies about opium. He said that uh, the that the really problem is Mexico. In Mexico was alcohol, no opium, no heroin, no marijuana. No, because there there was and now there are a lot of consumption of, of alcohol. And um, based in, in these uh, studies of this Salazar Vinegra, the government of Lázaro Cárdenas, that was a president that is known for his socialist policies, in the 1940s published a federal law drug addiction. addiction you know? This law gave the control of commercialization of drugs to the state, mediated by the health department, and with this law, the Mexican state created dispensaries to sell or give free of charge drugs, mainly uh, opiates, marijuana and morphine, digo, sorry, heroin and opium and morphine. So the the state uh, was in charge of these dispensaries. I think that is like current, like the current Uruguay model. So this law established this, these consumers will be trained like patients or sick people, but not like criminals. And so at that point, those drugs were effectively legalized. Is that right? Yeah, that's what that, that some historians say, that it's the, the year. Not the year, because they're only like five months, but when Mexico legalized drugs. Wow. And have there been any uh, findings of kind of the, the different impacts on users during that time versus the, the changing laws that came after that? Not a lot because there, the I mean the the law uh, was published, but there are only a few months that to put to enforce the law. So they made a dispensary, and the press, for example, only say that there is very bad that the government say that, but because they in that moment the the drug addicts were uh, on a line waiting for their drugs, and that's uh, not good for this uh, area of the city and and another but it's only the press i mean there are no like official evidence but and um, for example another uh, another newspaper say that the main uh, trafficker of that moment that that was a woman lola chata was very angry about this law no because that reduced their the money and the, the selling that she was making so 
but there is only the press. We don't know exa a, a lot about the, if this really make a lot of change, but but they're they're trying and but then uh, they have to stop this law, so that's stop also like the changes that maybe it could happen. Yeah, and actually, I I, I want to ask a follow up about the uh, the organized crime aspect. Uh, but before touching on how it was affected at this time, you know, actually, if we can take a step back and going back to the 20s, around the time when the, the first prohibition laws were starting to change, when did uh, black markets and, uh, you know, kind of the beginnings of, we, of what we now think of as the cartels, when did that history start beginning to unfold? Mm, I, I think that there are like three moments. When, when the prohibition starts in the 1920s, because there are people that have uh, some power and and came to selling and producing illegal drugs, but I think that this grow after World War Two, no, because Mexico became a very important producer of of drugs, mainly heroin, for example, and then in 1970, 1970s and 1980s became a really big problem. I think that more, more like we have now. I, I don't know a lot about the second part of the 20th century, to be honest, but uh, I think that after World War II, it changed a lot because also changed uh, the policies. So the, the this security approach of the prohibition uh, came harder and that that made that the traffickers became like have to find another strategies and that some of these strategies are like more violent for example so yeah so i was wondering actually right before that second point that you mentioned that uh, you know after the laws changed after world war 2 how are things for from the criminal organized crime perspective uh, leading into world war 2 and going into the legalization i know you mentioned uh, the one trafficker who was uh, who sort of uh, is noted as saying that uh, her business was being disrupted. But was organized crime already a, a large thing in Mexico at that time, or, or was it not not particularly? No, I think that that's only after 1970 not, not, yeah, or 80s, maybe, that this like, organized crime and these very powerful groups uh, became like, and this violent situation. In that moment, there's a violent, but no in, in in the magnitude that we have now. I think that this only after this these big cartels, this idea, for example, is in this in nineteen eighties and nineteen seventies. Before there are little groups, no there are groups, not only one trafficker and for example in nineteen forties, but no with the power. But for example, it it, it it's began to happen because in nineteen forties, for example for example, these groups became to be, for example, some of the members of these groups that are very related with with the politician people. So it's, I think that this relation and corruption in with traffickers and and the politics uh, that's that helped that this uh, grow up after that. I know you mentioned overall how the uh, how drug policy started changing after World War II and after that short stint of legalization. Can you add some more color about the specifics of 
uh, what kind of policies were being put into place at that point? Yeah, for example, um, they they changed the the institution that was in charge for, from the health department, like from the army and from the police, from the police. So that's a uh, one thing, and that because that. Uh, groups uh, have another other strategy so that's and uh, also the and sorry just to make sure there was it it it, it was under both the army and the police kind of a joint uh responsibility there was it under just one of them Uh, both for example and yeah 1947 they made like a big campaign against drugs more uh, against the crop the cultivation of drugs so in this, because they have to went to these rural areas, yeah, you know, in the mountains. So they have to be police more with the part of intelligent part, but they have to go with the army because they need like the support of the army and the the capacity that have the, the army. And also, it's good to say that in this, for example, in this campaign, there are some uh, people from uh, the U.S. or from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics that were part of these campaigns. There are different organizations of Mexico or institutions and from also from the U.S. So, yeah, I think that that changed a lot uh, the approach of these drug policies. And also by the end of 1940s, the, the laws changed. They uh, changed the penal code. They include more activities related to drugs like the production or uh, but they they made like the laws were more um, hard. For example, before this law, there are like between one to five years, no, if you committed a, a drug crime. Or after the, this uh, change, they put uh, between five to fifteen years, no. So that made it harder to you uh, committed one of the drug crimes. So that's there's more 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 punish in this in this kind of, of policies. And what year was this that the, that these laws came in? In 1947, and then on the on this 1970s more more they're changed more and they are more uh, they have uh, longer penalties. And in the 1940s, uh, when it was coming up to 47 and around the time that those those laws were coming in. What impacts were the drug policies in the U.S. having on what was going on in Mexico? And was there anyone in particular, uh, whether Harry Anslinger or anyone else, uh, who kind of had impacts within Mexico on the on the drug policy side? I think that there are a lot of influence from the U.S. in Mexico more, more than in the other part. I don't, or maybe there are, but I don't know if, for example, this change in Mexico have some consequence in the U.S., but this change in Mexico, there, there, uh, it was made. I think that because the pressure of of Aslinger in particular, because Aslinger, in one of the drug uh, narcotic of the Narcotic Commission uh, from the United Nations that was uh, um, New York. In I think it was the second of these uh, commissions in 1946. He accused Mexico that that Mexico uh, was producing a lot of heroin and that this heroin is going to the U.S. and that uh, it's a, a problem from the population in the for the population in the U.S. 
So that pressure from Ashlinger and then the, the government here in Mexico was very worried about these these things that Ashlinger say on that commission. So and then Ashlinger also sent a lot of not a lot, but some agents uh, from this Bureau of Narcotics to look what's happening in Mexico. There are a lot of uh, documents, no, about like this um, communication between police and, and other authorities in Mexico with with Ashlinger. Also, Ashlinger came right in in 1947 or eight to look what is happening in Mexico. No, he ha- he visited the. And other authorities, and to to talk with them, and to see all the situation. So he 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 was very worried about uh, this situation in Mexico, and he he did a lot of pressure about that. And how did the market start changing after the laws in terms of which substances were most most prevalent? Uh, so, um, some people or some historians say because the 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 war the World War Two change the roots, no, a lot of more opiates went to to the US. They are from Afghanistan, for example, of this area of Middle East from to the US. But, but with the war these roots change and then Mexico it's it's like it became uh, to to be a very big producer of, of heroin mainly because that's because before that Mexico produced both more marijuana but after that uh, heroin became a big problem and I think that one that's one of the so the change and also the then with different politics change for example in Latin America the roots have to to for example cocaine from South America have to pass from Mexico no because before uh, there are other routes from Cuba, for example, but with the change in Cuba, the cocaine have to pass in Mexico. So in the 60s, 70s, uh, Mexico, there is no only the producing drugs, but it's also the the route from from different drugs, no, and and because the border. So I think that is like change and. And I just wanted to touch on one more topic, which was uh, from the perspective of medical experimentation and whether or not any drugs, opiates, peyote, marijuana, or any of the other ones that have been mentioned, if any were used for medical experimentation. Yeah, first, marijuana, peyote. But for example, at the 50s and 60s, uh, in psychiatry, there are different local scientists that... uh, made some experiments with psilocybin, no, with mescaline, and maybe with LSD. But they have a lot of problems with the law when they made that. But there are some scientists that, that local scientists, local and international. No? For example, in 1969, I think, or 62, uh, Timothy Larry came to make some experiments with psilocybin and with LSD here in, in Mexico. So... Yeah, but also local scientists make some experiments, some very famous, you know, like um, a psychiatrist, uh, Salvador Roquet. He had a, a clinic in ni- 1970s, I think, and he experimented with ketamine, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, uh, and he is trying to. He was trying to make like a mix with psychiatry and with like indigenous tradition, you no, know? like a therapy that is like more holistic or something. 
but they were they was put in jail on prison because this clinic for yes and for example this uh, this scientist Leopoldo Saralsali Vinegra he was not put in jail, but he received like some message of the government that he has to stop their experiments with marijuana because that's prohibited. So that's when the, these kind of experiments and science stop. And from all of the work that you've done and the kind of research you've been doing, what do you see as some of the big takeaways for how we, from the, the time periods that you've studied for how we think about drug policy now? Yeah, I think that we, we have to look uh, to the past, like to think, for example, these examples of legalization that there is, we think that is new, but it's not new. We could look how this happened because it's a process, no? Because, for example, you say about this, like the people, what the people think about, if the ideas of the population uh, haven't changed, I mean, this, there are no the support of prohibition that, that then the, the government have. So I think it's very important like to look in these different examples in the past and to know how this happened and, and to understand how now this is, why this is a big problem today, you know, for, I think, it's, it's, we, we can learn a lot about the past. Great. And are there any organizations or individuals that you think are doing good work in the space of drug research that you'd want to highlight? Uh, yeah, now there are a lot of people, academic, individuals or organizations. Uh, for example, there are a lot of drug historians like like me. Uh, like uh, There are another professor like Ricardo Perez Monfort that have a very good job. There are um, a girl uh, that study only opium, that maybe you're interested in, Cynthia Capo. She's making a, a research about opium in Mexico in this historical uh, way. But there are also a lot of people that they're uh, making, uh, or they're working on drug policies or on harm reduction publications. So there are... Um, People they are uh, trying to change these drug policies and the consequences like the violence, um, like reverdecer. There are some guys that make a verter that make some harm reduction uh, with um, opiates at uh, the north of Mexico. Verter is the name of this mm. organization. And yeah, now there are now, for example, now there are scientists that they are making more research. Uh, in laboratories of this kind of uh, medicine uh, or biology that now they are working in the main universities in Mexico, they are now they are looking on, on, on drugs now because now it's a very important topic. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is written and produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at Drugs History or over email, drugshistory at gmail.com. I'm going to add a link to a list of citations in the show notes as well. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon. Drugs History.